it is a um, it is a massive privilege to be here to be opening up uh, this part of God's Word with you all. Uh, why don't I pray first, and then we'll we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new and, and, and yet to be discovered, that your, your graces are refreshing, Father. We pray now that as we open up your word, as we hear you speak to us, that you would give us soft hearts, that you give us minds that are willing to wrestle and, and, and grapple with the things that are in your word, and that you would give us hands and feet that are willing and quick to apply the things that you want from us. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would do yet again something miraculous in our lives and transform us from one degree of glory to the next so that we might be more and more like your son, Jesus. Amen. How do we deal with matters of the heart? Right? How do we deal with matters of the heart? I'm not referring to kind of the blood pump in your chest. I'm not referring to kind of those love stories that you might think about. How do we deal with matters of the heart? There's a movement in our culture, in our world, that kind of says something like this, that you should, just, you should just follow your heart. Have you heard this? Yeah, you should just follow your heart. Surely you've heard of that, right? It's a movement that essentially says the only thing that needs to govern your life, your way of being, are your feelings. Don't worry about other people's thoughts of you or expectations from around you. Follow your heart. And on top of that, if anyone gets in the way, bigot, judgy, arrogant. Follow your heart. But it's not a particularly new movement, is it? You know, I remember when I was in, in high school, and, and particularly in year 12, and pretty much every conversation that I had with someone about where I was going to study or what I was going to do for work, the constant advice was, follow your heart, right? Have you heard that? Did you have that? Was that your experience? Or maybe, you know, this, the same advice, it's, it's also acutely relevant in pretty much any conversation now about identity, any conversation you have about identity, follow your heart. Be who you want to be. Is that familiar to you as well? Or what about this one, right? There is now even this kind of this, this popular Christianity where this thinking has crept in. Where it's like let your, your feelings of God or his word shape your view of God and his word. Let your feelings shape those things. And so how do we deal with matters of the heart? Do we just follow our hearts? Is that the, the advice we should go with? You see, the Bible, well, the Bible paints a vividly different picture of the heart. The heart is not to be the governing body of your life. This idea of follow your heart, this might be surprising to you, it runs in complete opposition to the Bible. It runs in complete opposition to the Bible. You might have heard of um, a famous theologian, a reformer by the name of John Calvin. Have you heard of him? He says this of the human heart. I've got it on here as well, a quote. He says, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, constantly spitting out idols. Or more than this, don't worry about John Calvin, what about Jesus? What does Jesus say of the heart? Well, he says lots, but in particular, in Matthew chapter 19, he says this, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Wow. This is not a good picture of the heart. And so how do we deal with matters of the heart with all this in mind? Well, turn with me to, to 1 Kings chapter 18, that reading that we just had out before. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to keep them open here. 
We're going to work through this. But just by way of context, if, if you're not familiar with, uh, with 1 Kings, uh, the book of 1 and 2 Kings, it's actually kind of one whole book. And what it does is it tells us the story of these Old Testament kings and the history of them uh, with Israel. You might know some of these kings like Rehoboam or, or Jeroboam or Hezekiah or, or Ahaz or Zimri. Yeah, ever heard of Zimri? That's a pretty cool name. <laughs> or my favorite one, Josiah. If we didn't go with Judah, we would have called we would have called our baby Josiah. But anyways, that's another story. But this book of one and two kings, it has this kind of goal of, of teaching and, and affirming and communicating that the God of the Bible, he is the one true God. The only one worthy of your kind of full allegiance and worship. That is the message of the book, but it communicates it in this weird kind of paradoxical way. Because what it does is it tells you about these kings and it tells you about how these kings lead the people away from God. You see, in all, there are, there are about 40 kings that we see. And they all each receive an evaluation. And the evaluation criteria, it's based on this. It's, did they do evil or right in the eyes of the Lord? And out of the 40 kings, guess how many do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Eight. Only eight, just size one of them. Only eight do what is right. And so this is the book of Kings, right? And what it's trying to show us is that the rejection of God as the one true king, it will not go well for you. It will not go well for you. That's the book of Kings. Now, the immediate context for us, well, if you just flick back a page to, to 1 Kings chapter 16 from verse 29, we see Ahab, son of Omri. He is king of Israel. But I want you to take note of the evaluation that he receives from verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. How's that for, for an evaluation? Did more evil than any of those before him. And part of the evil that kind of Ahab does is, is this worship of this idol called Baal. This is the king of Israel at this stage. But then you move on a little bit more, immediate context again. You look at chapter 17, and who comes onto the scene? The famous prophet Elijah. Right? You've all heard of him, right? The famous prophet Elijah. And then we get to chapter 18, and we see this great contest. This great contest between King Ahab and, and his idol, his, his god Baal, and then the prophet of God, Elijah, and, and Yahweh, right? the one true God. And here's where we're going to spend our time in, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And what I'm hoping, I think if I do my job correctly, what we'll, what we'll see is an answer to that question that I posed earlier. How do we deal with matters of the heart? So stick with me, right? Let's have a look. Uh, the dominating thought of our passage, it's, it's super easy to identify. It's repeated lots. The first time we see it is in verse 21, uh, which is this slide, right? Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now what's happening here? Well, Elijah is challenging the very core of the people's beliefs. He has gathered all the people together, all Israel and all the prophets, and he is unapologetically, unashamedly calling them out. What is he doing? He's inquiring into matters of the heart. He's inquiring into matters of the heart. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Where is your heart? Does it belong to God or to Baal? Where is your heart? 
Because what's been happening for the people is, well, it's clear-cut idolatry. God is no longer being worshipped as the one true God. The people's hearts are elsewhere. But I want you to think with me a little more deeply about this idolatry. Before we're too quick to kind of throw stones at them and be like, ah, you fools, think with me a little more deeply about idolatry. I want you to imagine that you live in Israel back in the 9th century BC. You know, you, you might be a baker or a butcher or a fisherman or I don't know like what the equivalent of an office job is, like a, like a goat counter or a scribe or something, I don't know. But I want you to imagine you're one of those things or even a mum or a dad, right? And you, like everyone else, you spend your time doing everyday things. You know, you, you work, you spend time with your family, you pay the equivalent of, of bills and groceries, you think about ways to, to, to you know, get ahead, of course. And like every single Israelite has for generations, you worship. It was part of your life. But here in 1 Kings, this worship has changed. It's not the exclusive worship of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, anymore, like your great-great-great-great-grandparents did. It might not be the previously kind of public handing on of those great Bible stories. You know how, how God created the heavens and the earth, of how he, kind of, he split the Red Sea to let his people go free from Egypt, of how he did these amazing, miraculous things, how he called Abraham and started this new kind of covenant relationship where, where this, be- this beautiful mingling of, of law and love. No, that's not the kind of worship that's happening anymore. It's not the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Here in 1 Kings, for many years now, the people who live where you live, who you are rubbing shoulders with, they worship this this God called Baal, this Canaanite God who they call the owner of the earth, the God of fertility, the, the God of the crops. And here is where following your heart comes in, right? Because as time goes on, as the people around you are doing it, the people you're rubbing shoulders with, even the people in power are endorsing it, right? Like King Ahab and his wife you start to think, maybe your heart starts to tell you, it's okay, maybe I should just start worshipping Baal as well. You start to rationalise it. You know, life, is, life is a bit tough here in, in 9th century BC. It's pretty tricky. You know, concerns and worries for the future creep in. You know, the context for 1 Kings is they've been in a drought and famine now for nearly three years. Baal, he's the perfect way out. The God of the crops. And so this is exactly what happens. You turn your heart, the people turn their hearts to worship Baal. Not necessarily instead of God, but alongside, wavering or limping between the two, says Elijah. But here's the ridiculous thing about idolatry. Even in their idolatry, their worship of Baal is flawed. It is flawed because what is the reason for their worship of Baal? It's not because of who he is. It's, it's not because of, of who he is. It has got nothing to do with who he is. It's all because of what Baal, the god of the crops, can do. It's all because of what Baal, god of the crops, god of fertility, can offer me. Baal can help. This is what idol worship is. It is not for the sake of worship. It is worship for the sake of transaction. You can have my allegiance as long as I can get something from you. 
But you know, something similar happens to Jesus himself. Did you know that? If you have your Bibles, turn to, um, to John chapter 6 with me. John chapter 6 is this remarkable, this remarkable moment where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Uh, and then in there in verse 26, um, the, he's just fed the 5,000. He, he's just walked on water and the crowds, obviously they're, they're drawn to Jesus. They keep coming to him and they finally find him and Jesus says to them this in verse 26 of John chapter 6. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What is Jesus saying to them? You're not coming to me because I am God, because I am the Son of God. You are coming to me because your God is your stomach. Worship for the sake of transaction. Now, why, why am I saying this? Well, it's because idolatry, we so often kind of relegate and, and restrict to Old Testament times, don't we? We think, oh, we would never do something like that. It's archaic, it's ancient. No. It's not just in 1 Kings or in, in Jesus' day. No, no, no. Idolatry it has the same bones. It has the same bones for you and I, for us. Let me take some time to bring this to bear on you. Because it's not just the ancient Israelites or, or the Canaanites who made sacrifices to their idols or, or bowed the knee to these, these wooden statues and, and stone things. Remember what John Calvin said? The human heart is an idol-making factory. Our idols have the same bones. They might just have different flesh. Our idols have just evolved. They're not, they're not made of stone or gold. Although, I should say, for some, some people, they still are. Our idols, well, they're just far more discreet, far more disguised than blatant apostasy or worship of another deity. We're, we've convinced ourselves that we're just too clever for that, aren't we? And this is, this is where I want to zero in, on your heart, on my heart. Because what are the bones of idolatry? What are the bones of idolatry back then? What are the bones of idolatry now? It is you, your heart. Your heart is, are the bones of idolatry. You see, at the core of our idolatry, it's not the usual responses that people might give, like uh, these ones might be trigger ones, like, like money or, or reputation or material things or, or the God of the crops. The core, the bones of your idolatry, it is your heart. Think with me on this. Take money for an example. Some people, you know, they might say money is an idol, but who here kind of takes a $50 note or a $100 note and goes, wow, I have to frame this, hang it up in my house, and every day before I leave, I'm going to touch it, I'm going to kiss it, I'm going to bow the knee to it. Does anyone do that? If you do that, don't do that. Stop doing that. That's silly. But who does that? Or, or who waits for that, that kind of that crisp paycheck to come through, and then you print it off, and then you poke a hole in it, and then you wear it as a necklace? Does anyone do that? Again, don't do that. None of us do that, do we? Instead, what we use is, is we use money to be self-serving. We use money to be self-serving. And so what we actually worship is ourselves. And on the surface, it looks like affection for money or for reputation or for materials or for the God of the crops. But at the core of our idolatry, it is our 
hearts, our needs, our concerns, our feelings, our lives, our wants, our desires. They are paramount and therefore everything else, everyone else, is subservient. And I wonder, follow your heart is, is the war cry of our world. Idolatry has the same bones. The flesh of them have just changed. And the reason I say all of this is because as we finally turn to this, this great contest in 1 Kings chapter 18, it's not just the Israelites who are kind of there with their idolatrous hearts. No, right, right there with them is us and our idolatrous hearts. And so we come to this contest asking the same question that Elijah asked of the people. If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. Forsake the love of self, the worship of self, the worship of heart, whatever that might look like for you, and follow God. So now we finally get to the great contest. Have a look with me from verse, uh, verse 16. If you've got your Bible, sorry, turn back to, to 1 Kings. From verse 16 of chapter 18. The contest is being set up. The contest is going to be set up. There's, there's going to be 850 prophets of these other gods there, and there's going to be a huge audience from all over Israel. And where's it going to happen? It's going to happen on Mount Carmel, Baal's home ground. You can think of it, you can think of it like this. Um, what's, your, what's your sport here other than NRL? What's your, weightlifting. Anyone, any weightlifters here? Yeah, Mark? Yeah, cool. Mark. I want you to imagine, I want you, I want you to imagine Mark is, is training for this weightlifting comp, right? And then he goes to the Olympics in the future, and he's there, it's, it's, it's overseas, wherever the next one is, and he's there and he's ready to, to lift his weight, but there's only one person in the crowd cheering him on, and it's his mum. And he's just standing there going, Go, Mark! Woo! You've got this! This is the kind of scene we get here in 1 Kings. Elijah, the one in the crowd, cheering on Yahweh, surrounded by 850 more people in the crowd than him. This is the picture that we're to get. And, and you might be thinking, well, what, like, what's going on here? It's on, it's on Baal's home ground. It's all of Baal's prophets. But it's supposed to be a contest showing who's the true God. Elijah, aren't you a bit worried about this? No. Not at all. In fact, you read it again. And who set it up that way? Elijah did. He knows exactly what his God is capable of. And so into that context, into that setting, he then presents it. In verse 21, that, that dominating thought of our passage, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people's response? They say nothing. Silence. Silence, as probably the only sound, is that of the wind kind of blowing past the now browned and, and deadened leaves on Mount Carmel. Silence, as now, as Elijah inquires into matters of the heart, their idolatry is being rebuked. Silence, as they begin to ponder the outcomes. What if, what if Yahweh, what if this God of, of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, what if he really is God? There are going to be consequences. There's surely going to be a scalpel that comes along to remove the idolatry, the tumour of this nation's idolatry. Silence. And Elijah goes on. 
They are to each cut up and prepare their bull and lay it on the altar, but they're not to set fire to it. And then the God who answers by sending fire upon the offering, he is God. And the people all agree. What you say is good. The contest is accepted. In verse 25, Elijah, he lets them, from verse 25, Elijah lets them go first. They prepare their bull and they're all set to go. And then all of a sudden, it begins. Shouting, burst into shouting and cries, Baal, answer us, answer us, Baal. But it doesn't work. So they continue. They persevere from morning to noon. They even try dancing because apparently Baal, the God of the crops, loves it when they dance. But no response. And then in verse 27, the scene shifts to Elijah. A bit of a weird thing. But you can kind of imagine Elijah, he's just like kicking back in the corner. He's got his like goatskin shirt on, a goatskin hat with a piece of weed sticking out of his mouth and just kicking back. And he starts to taunt them. He starts to banter with them. Elijah, you must have been an Aussie, right? He goes, guys, I reckon you need to be louder. You've just got to be louder. That's all you've got to do. How can he hear you? He's all the way out there and you're down here. Just shout louder. Or maybe, you know that part where it says he's busy? Um, there's a, one understanding of that is that actually what's happened is uh, he's referring to going to the toilet. So, so maybe Baal just kind of had some of that Canaanite curry the night before and now he's sitting on the toilet. He starts, he starts bantering with them. He taunts them. But then it, it just, well, it gets stranger, doesn't it? It gets sadder here. The people, they begin to cut themselves. They spill blood in their efforts to get Baal's attention. The scene, it's tragic, isn't it? The people circling this altar, a mixture of kind of blood and sweat dripping to their ground. Their throats, like surely it would have been like razor blades after all that shouting. Midday passes and there is no response. No one answers, no one pays attention. Because this is the end result of idolatry, isn't it? Our hearts, they cannot meet the needs that we have. Following your heart, it's just not good advice. They just become sources of frustration and hurt and bitterness and resentment. Well, now it's Elijah's turn. Or better yet, actually, it's, it's God's turn. It's Yahweh's turn. And so Elijah, he begins preparing. He digs a trench around the altar, uh, the, uh, an altar that he's remade, and, and then he, he preps the bull and he lays it on the altar. And then he does something a bit weird here. He asks them to pour four large jars of water all over it. And, he, and then he asks them to do it three times. And what's going on here? The water, it saturates the wood, it soaks the bull carcass, it even fills the trench. Like, there's, there's no way this can burn, right? It's, it's completely drowned in water. Even if fire comes from somewhere, how is it going to burn? Well, Elijah, obviously, knows exactly what Yahweh is capable of. He knows exactly what the one true God can do. And so then, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah steps forward and with a simple prayer, a prayer that shows that the power is not in the prayer or in the eloquence of your prayer, a prayer that shows the power is in the one you are praying to. And so he steps forward and he prays from verse 36 and 37. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel 
and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that the people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then, overwhelming fire from the Lord consumes the bullet, scorches the wood, the stone and the soil and it even licks up the water that's in the trench. This this altar that was once there is now just a smouldering, blackened pile of ash. Surprise, God won. God has answered. He has won the contest. He is God. And then in verse 39, the people all proclaim this truth. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. How do we deal with matters of the heart? How do we deal with matters of the heart when our hearts are self-serving, hearts that long to protect, preserve, prioritize self over anything and everything else? I mean, is it it really as simple as needing to see God as the winner of some contest? Do we just need to recognize that God has answered by divine fire and then kind of snap out of the days of, of our idolatry? Is that what the sin of idolatry is, just a simple daze? Well, no. It's not, is it? That can't be the case because only chapters later, the people begin their idolatrous worship again. And in fact, the book of Kings finishes with the people in exile, suffering the judgment of God for their idolatry, for their sin, their constant and consistent unfaithfulness and sinfulness against God. There's something more to the corruptness of our hearts. It's not like it's just this crime against the holy God. It's almost like there's actually a disease within. A sickness. And so here's the thing. A kind of really anti, kind of anticlimactic moment for us. The answer of divine fire in this great contest, well... It's not going to deal with matters of the heart. It's not going to deal with matters of our heart. But that's just it. You see, this is not the climax of the Bible, is it? This is not the climax. I actually think that these events, they're they're recorded, they're preserved for you and I, not so much about a contest of two gods, but rather to tell us of the one true God who is zealous for your heart and longs for you to know that there is, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. That there is no other way for you to have your heart effectively turned back to God than by his grace and his work, by his Holy Spirit and in the person of Jesus. And so the contest here in 1 Kings... It's actually one that points beyond itself. It points to something, that, that, something that's coming that will deal with the matters of our heart. And of course, we can guess who that is. You see, just as Elijah offered his sacrifice and prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice, roughly 3 p.m., there was someone else who offered a sacrifice and a prayer roughly 900 years later at roughly 3 p.m. Who was it? Jesus the Christ, 
But he doesn't offer a bull. He offers his own body. He's not saturated in water. He's covered in his own blood and sweat. As he was butchered and forced to carry his own altar, the cross on which he would be sacrificed. And he carried his altar, that cross, to another mountain called Golgotha. And surrounding him were crowds of sinners and the enemies of God. And then just as the consuming fire of God fell on that bull in Elijah's day, so too the fire, that is the wrath of God, fell on our Lord Jesus in the place of sinners to save us, to, to, to call us from our idolatrous hearts and to leave God where he rightfully belongs, on the throne of your heart. So how do we deal with matters of the heart? Well, let me finish by answering this for the three groups that I think are amongst us today. Let me, let me apply this to those three groups. The first one is this, is, is, is the person who is not a Christian. If you were sitting here and you're not a Christian and, and you don't follow God and, and maybe it's your first time, firstly, let me say, I'm so glad you're here. It's my first time here too. It's great. Great to be You're in good company. But let me say that there is a sharp edge to the good news of Jesus. There is a sharp edge that you must come to terms with. And for your sake, I, I don't want to shy away from it. I actually I want to lean into it. Let me take you to the passage again. And I want you to have a look there in verse 40. I think it'll come up on the screen. Have a look there in verse 40. It says, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered. For the wickedness and evil committed by the prophets of Baal in their deliberate false teaching and in leading the people away from God into a way of, of death, this cancerous idolatry must be removed. One commentator puts it like this. You don't treat cancer with a breath mint. You treat it with surgery. And so God permits surgery via Elijah. And here's the sharp edge. My sin, your sin, must be treated in the same way. We deserve to be cut off from God, to face his right and just judgment. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you do not need to face the surgeon's blade because he has done it for you. He's done it for you in your place. And so if the dominating thought of, of one kings is if the Lord is God, follow him, then the sobering cry from the cross of Christ, it is if Jesus is Lord and Saviour, put your trust in him as the one who can save you. Put your trust in him as the one who can save you. Following your heart does not offer anything of lasting gain. It will not give you the satisfaction that you are after. It cannot give you the fulfillment that you are searching for because your heart is flawed. And so if you are not following Jesus today, don't follow your heart. Direct your heart to follow Jesus. 
to follow Jesus as the one who can save you. The second group that I want to speak to, it's similar to the first one, similar to the first one, uh, but it's the, it's, it's the on-the-fence person. Have you heard of the on-the-fence person? You know, maybe you've been coming to church for a little bit uh, and you're, you're just not sure. You know? These things, that they're, re- they're really compelling. The person of Jesus is really compelling, but I'm just not sure. I'm not sure I'm ready to make that kind of commitment. You're wavering, right? You're wavering between the two. How do you deal with matters of your heart? Well, if the dominating thought is how long will you waver between the two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. Let me ask you this. If Jesus really did live, die, and rise again, dealing with both the crime and the disease of your sin, how long will you waver between two opinions? If he really did do that, follow him. It's really as simple and as complex as that. How long will you waver between your two options? Christianity, it's not a feelings-based religion. It is based on the fact of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not follow your heart. Follow him and let his teaching applied by the Holy Spirit inform your heart. And finally, I want to speak to those of you who do profess faith in Jesus, to the saints here at, uh, at, at Bustleton Baptist Church. How do you deal with matters of the heart? Well, brothers and sisters, do not follow your heart. If that's ever been a thought in your head, take that, scrunch it up, throw it in the bin, throw it in the toilet where Baal is on currently. Ignore that. That's horrendous advice. Do not let your feelings dictate your life. Do not let your feelings, your attitude, your mindset dictate how you worship God. Do not let your feelings, your thinking, shape your understanding, your view of God and his word. Because what will happen is that, that popular Christianity that I mentioned at the, center, at the start, that will creep in. This popular Christianity that says, let your feelings govern how you view God. Do not let that happen. Because all that will do for us is make us naive, deficient, and false Bible readers, but we will become selective of how it applies and the bits that we read and the bits that we teach. Do not forget how wicked and deceitful your heart is. It will constantly try to be self-serving and call you to live in resistance to the ways of Jesus. Instead, be selfless. Seek the good of the other. Rather than affection for money, use your money to serve the church. God's church, his bride, as we were reminded. Be the foot washer like Jesus. Love others the way that Jesus has loved us. Be the servant amongst your brothers and sisters because this is how you follow your Lord and Saviour. Because if Jesus is God, then follow him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. The things that you have done are astonishing. That you would come to save us, people who have rejected you, people who who have these idolatrous hearts who think that we, we can be God. But yet you would still come in the person of Jesus 
to call us to be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you. We praise you for that. We praise you for what Jesus has done on that mountain all those years ago. Surrounded by enemies and sinners, how he would take and, 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 and cop and bear the full wrath of the living God for our sin so that we could be restored to you. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of how constantly, consistently we get it wrong, of how easily we slip into worshipping self, into following our hearts. Father, we, we ask of you that, that you would give us your spirit to follow the words of Jesus, to follow his teaching, and to not follow our hearts, but to be informed by your words so that we might follow Jesus even better even more faithfully, even more zealously, even more joyfully. Father, we see you as God, the one true God. And so help us to worship you. Help us to turn our hearts to you because you rightfully belong on the throne of our hearts. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. And the people said, Amen. Amen.